Chapter 23 of The Life of Thomas, Lord Cochrane, 10th Earl of Dundonald, completing The Autobiography of a Seaman, Volume 2, by Henry Richard Fox Bourne and others. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. 1828 to 1832. Lord Cochrane's retirement from the service of Greece brought to a close his career as a fighting seaman, with one brief exception occurring twenty years later when he commanded the British squadron in the North American and West Indian waters. But when there was no warfare to be done, the rest of his life, comprising thirty years of ripe manhood and vigorous old age, was passed without employment in the profession which was dear to him and which he had shown himself to be possessed of talents rarely equalled and certainly never surpassed. He entered that profession at the age of seventeen. In 1800, when he was twenty-four, he was promoted to the command of the Speedy. With that crazy little sloop, no larger than a coasting brig, he captured a large French privateer on the 10th of May, and on the 14th he recaptured two English vessels that had been seized by the enemy. On the 16th of June he took another French vessel, and on the 22nd another, with a prize which she had just obtained. On the 29th he secured a large Spanish privateer, in spite of five gunboats which fought in her defence. On the 19th of July he captured another French privateer and rescued her prize, and on the 27th he sunk another, and on the 31st he put another to flight and took possession of the prize, which she had in tow. On the 22nd of September he seized another of the enemy's vessels. On the 15th of December he wrecked one French warship and captured another, one of three which came to her assistance, and on the 24th, being attacked by two Spanish privateers, he took one of them. On the 16th of January, 1801, he chased two vessels and seized one, and on the 22nd, two of the enemy's craft, one French and one Spanish, struck to him. On the 24th of February, a French brig fell into his hands. The same fate was shared by another vessel on the 11th of April, by another on the 13th, and by two others on the 15th. He captured a Spanish tartan and a Spanish privateer on the 4th of May, and on the 13th occurred his celebrated victory over the Garmo, carrying four times the tonnage, six times the number of men, and seven times the weight of shot, possessed by the Speedy, which was soon followed by taking two other Spanish privateers heavily armed. On the 9th of June, the Speedy and another little vessel had a nine-hours fight, first with a Spanish Zebec and three gunboats, and afterwards with a Feluco and two more gunboats, which came to their aid, which were only allowed to escape when the English ammunition was nearly exhausted the Speedy having discharged 1,400 shot. On the 3rd of July, the Pygmy vessel, after hard fighting, had to surrender to three French line-of-battle ships. It was on that occasion that their senior officer, Captain Pallier, declined to accept the sword of an officer, as he said, who had for so many hours struggled against impossibility. In his 13 months' cruise, Lord Cochrane had, with his little sloop of 14 four-pounders and a crew of 54 officers and men, taken and retaken 50 vessels, 122 guns, and 534 prisoners. His next ship, the Arab, was made to serve during 14 months in seas, in which there was no work to be done. But for the palace, a fine frigate of 32 guns, who was allowed to find remarkable employment. He was first sent to the Azores, with orders to limit his cruise to a month. He captured one large Spanish vessel on the 6th of February, 1805, the second on the 13th, the third on the 15th, the fourth on the 16th, forced after that to be idle, as far as prize-taking was concerned, for more than a year, he seized two French vessels on the 27th of March, 1806, and another a few days later. On the 6th of April, he captured the Tapagoose, and on the 7th, he chased 
three other corvettes till they were driven on shore by their crews and wrecked. He took another prize on the 14th. On the 14th of May, the Pallas had her famous engagement with the French frigate Minerve and three brigs, the Lynx, the Sylph and the Palineur, carrying 88 guns in all, wherein she was so disabled that she was forced to return to Portsmouth to be refitted. The Imperius being assigned to him in August 1806, Lord Cochrane took two prizes on the 19th of December and a third on the 31st. He was then ordered home and there detained till the autumn of 1807. On the 14th of November, being again in the Mediterranean, he captured a Maltese pirate ship and soon afterwards seized some other vessels. Being ordered to scour the French coast during the summer of 1808, he took numerous prizes on the sea and effected yet more important work on land. With varying opposition, but with unvaried success, he wrote in his concise report to Lord Collingwood, on the 28th of September, the newly constructed semaphoric telegraphs, which are of the utmost consequence to the safety of the numerous convoys that pass along the coast of France, at Berding, Le Pinède, Saint-Maguire, Frontingen, Canet, and Fay, have been blown up and completely demolished, together with their telegraph houses, 14 barracks of gens d'armes, one battery, and a strong tower on the lake of Frontignan. The list of casualties was none killed, none wounded, one singed in blowing up the battery. That work was followed by more of the same nature, a famous episode in which was Lord Cochrane's occupation of the castle of Trinidad. The zeal and energy with which he has maintained that fortress, wrote Lord Collingwood, excite the highest admiration. His resources for every exigency have no end. The splendid exploit with the fireships in Basque Roads followed in 1809, and with that Lord Cochrane's services to England as a seaman were brought to a conclusion. Official persecution kept him in idleness during the remaining period of the war with France, and he was in the end driven to seek relief from oppression at home and exercise for his talents by devoting himself to the cause of freedom in Chile, Peru, Brazil, and Greece. His unparalleled successes on both sides of the South American continent and the circumstances of his partial failure in Greece have been sufficiently detailed in previous chapters. All through that time of virtual expatriation, his dearest hope had been that England would, as far as possible, retrieve the cruel wrong that had been done to him. Full redress was impossible. The heavy cloud that had been cast over so many years of his most energetic manhood could not be removed by any tardy act of justice. But that tardy justice could, at any rate, be done to him, and for this he strove with unabated zeal. To this end, he was partly occupied during his temporary absence from Greece in 1828. On the 4th of June, he addressed a memorial to the Duke of Clarence, then Lord High Admiral, who just two years afterwards was to become King of England. This memorial, eloquent in its simplicity and earnestness, the prelude to many others that were to be presented in later years, claims to be here quoted in full. To His Royal Highness, the Lord High Admiral, it ran, the memorial of Lord Cochrane humbly showeth, that for fourteen years your memorialist has suffered among many injuries and privations the loss of his situation and rank as post-captain in His Majesty's Navy in consequence of a verdict pronouncing your memorialist guilty of an offence of which he was entirely and absolutely innocent, that during the whole course of your memorialist's life, up to the day on which he was charged with the crime of conspiring with others to raise false reports, for the purpose of fraudulently effecting a rise in the price of the public funds, the character and conduct of your memorialist were without reproach, and numerous have been the transactions in which your memorialist has subsequently engaged. He has, amid all of them, uniformly preserved 
though not an unassailed yet an unshaken and unsullied character that your memorialist has never ceased and never can cease to assert his absolute innocence of the crime of which he was pronounced guilty he asserts it now most solemnly as in the presence of almighty god and certain he is that if every doubt be not dissipated in this world that when summoned to enter more immediately into that awful and infinite presence he shall not fail with his last breath most solemnly to assert his innocence that it was your memorialist's consciousness of innocence that contributed perhaps more than any other cause to produce his conviction because it rendered him confident and much less careful in making the necessary preparations for his defence than he ought to have been or that he would have been if guilty while on the other hand there existed the utmost zeal industry and skill in the conduct of the prosecution that your memorials did all that was possible to procure a revision of his case but as he had laboured under the disadvantage of being included in and tried under the same indictment with some who had probably no reason to complain of the result as well as the still greater disadvantage of having his defence splendid with theirs so was he denied a new trial for the same reason it being a rule of the court that a new trial should not be allowed to any individual tried for conspiracy unless all the parties should appear in court to join in the application which in the case of your memorialist could not possibly be some of the parties having quitted the country on the verdict being pronounced against them that your memorialist has never been able to obtain a reinvestigation of his extraordinary case nor to obtain redress in any way but now that your royal highness is lord high admiral and has among other illustrious acts distinguished yourself in that capacity by doing justice to meritorious officers your memorialist feels that he has everything to hope for from the magnanimity of your royal highness that it is indeed certain that nothing can be more repugnant to the feelings of your royal highness than that an individual who zealously devoted himself to the naval service of his king and country as your royal highness knows your memorialist to have done should be for ever cut off from the service without the most unquestionable certainty of the rectitude of so severe an infliction so far therefore as depends on your royal highness your memorialist cannot but confidently hope that he shall not be doomed to remain all his life the victim of a verdict of which he has not only never ceased to complain but which he knows that he has proved to be unfounded to the satisfaction of those who have examined as well what was advanced against him at the trial as what he has since adduced in his own justification your memorialist therefore is encouraged most respectfully to solicit your royal highness to represent his case a case of peculiar and unprecedented hardship to his most sacred majesty and to advocate his cause and if happily for your memorialist his most sacred majesty recognizing the innocence of your memorialist and taking his long protracted and unmerited sufferings into his gracious consideration should of his most gracious pleasure vouchsafe to reinstate your memorialist in that rank and station in his royal navy which he previously held your memorialist will ever maintain the deepest and most grateful sense of his duty to his most sacred majesty and to your royal highness and will never cease to testify his gratitude by all means in his power that document was presented by sir robert preston to the duke of clarence who promised to use every endeavour to obtain a reconsideration of lord cochrane's case he was unsuccessful dear sir he wrote to sir robert preston on the fourteenth of june immediately on the receipt of the memorial you brought from lord cochrane i sent it to the duke of wellington with a request it might be considered by his majesty's confidential servants and last evening i had a communication from his grace to state that the king's cabinet cannot comply with the prayer of the memorial 
I ever remain, dear sir, yours sincerely, William. The harsh news was sent to Paris, where the Lord Cochrane had gone in furtherance of his efforts for the assistance of Greece. To Paris he returned, as we have seen, after his final departure from Greece, and there he resided with his family for about six months. He paid a brief visit to England in September 1829, but seeing no immediate prospect of gaining the restitution of his naval rank, and finding that idle life at home was especially irksome to him, he soon went back to the continent. The serious illness of Lady Cochrane induced him to pass the winter in Italy, where, by the same cause, he was detained for several months. He was in England again in the autumn of 1830. One motive for his return was the accession of the Duke of Clarence to the throne as King William the Fourth. The new sovereigns often expressed sympathy for him, induced him to hope that now he had a better chance of obtaining the justice that had been so long withheld. The change of sovereigns, however, was of small avail, while the ministers who had summarily rejected his former memorial continued to have the direction of affairs. Quote, to petition or memorialise the king, whilst his present ministers remain in office, he wrote in a letter on the 10th of September, would be to debase myself in my own estimation, and I think in that of every man of sense and feeling. I cannot petition again, he said in another letter, though I am assured from high authority it would be attended to. Sir Robert Wilson and others have obtained favour, but I, who protested against the forging of charts and public waste of money, have had no mercy shown. Lord Cochrane ascertained about this time that his memorial of 1828, though sent by the Duke of Clarence, for the consideration of King George the Fourth, had never reached His Majesty, the Cabinet having preferred to dismiss it at once. He therefore had good reason for abstaining from further action until a more friendly ministry should be in power. He had not long to wait. On the 16th of November, the Duke of Wellington's Cabinet resigned. In the administration which succeeded, Earl Grey was the Premier, and Mr. Brougham, raised to the peerage, was Lord Chancellor. Lord Cochrane then lost no time in completing a review of his case, which he had prepared for publication, and in getting ready some early copies of the volume to be presented to the King and his ministers. The King's copy was forwarded through Lord Melbourne, the Home Secretary, on the 10th of December, accompanied by a brief petition. Assured that the memorial which I laid before Your Majesty when Lord High Admiral, wrote Lord Cochrane, was honoured with your earnest consideration, and that Your Majesty was graciously pleased to make an effort in my behalf, with the desire of restoring me to my station in the Navy, assured too that had not ministers of the late Most Gracious Majesty been opposed to the prayer of my memorial, I should then have been restored, and believing that no such obstacle to Your Majesty's favour would now be interposed, I have every reason to hope that the auspicious moment is at length arrived, when the redress which I have so long sought will be freely bestowed by my most gracious sovereign. I beseech your majesty to condescend to receive the accompanying review of my case, which I trust will prove to your majesty that I am not unworthy of that act of your majesty's favour, which I humbly solicit. It is not because I have undergone a sentence heavier than the law pronounced. It is not because I have been deprived of sixteen years of the rank and honours which I acquired in the Royal Navy, nor is it because I am deserving of any consideration on account of services to my king and country, that I now presume to appeal to your majesty, though no one is more likely than your majesty to feel for my sufferings, and no one more competent to appreciate my services. But it is because I had no participation in and no knowledge, not even the most indistinct and remote, of the crime under the imputation of which I have been so variously and so unceasingly punished. It is this alone which impels me to approach your majesty, and this alone which enables me. It is no letter ends. 
other copies of the review having been sent to the cabinet ministers with letters urging its favourable consideration lord cochrane in nearly every case received a friendly answer i need not say wrote lord grey on the twelfth of december that it would give me great satisfaction if it should be found possible to comply with the prayer of your petition this opinion i have expressed some years ago in a letter which i believe was communicated to you to the sentiments expressed in that letter i refer which if i remember right acquitted you of all blame except such as might have been incurred by inadvertence and by having suffered yourself to be led by others into measures of the consequences of which you were not sufficiently aware letter ends more than a year was to be spent however in persevering effort before lord cochrane's claim for justice was acceded to objection was taken by some to the form in which his address to the king was worded it was a letter they said not a petition and lord cochrane was distressed at hearing on the eighteenth that the document had been given back by his majesty to lord melbourne without any comment if i have erred in the form of my petition which was in the shape of a most respectful and dutiful letter to his majesty or as to the channel through which it should have been forwarded said lord cochrane in a letter to earl grey written on the twenty third of december i have erred in judgment only and it would be hard indeed should redress not be accorded by reason of any informality in the mode of my application i have since been advised that my petition ought to have been forwarded through the first lord of the admiralty whom i have therefore solicited to present another petition the same in effect but more brief and in the regular form when his majesty was lord high admiral he received a memorial from me by the hands of sir robert preston and though it had not the effect of procuring my restoration at that time yet from the gracious manner in which i am assured it was received i did flatter myself that his majesty would have pleasure in the opportunity which appeared to present itself when your lordship's administration was formed of originating a measure which all would consider gracious and most i hope believed to be perfectly just in reference to the letter in answer to mine with which your lordship honoured me on the twelfth instant which i cannot but perceive is written with a kindness of feeling which commands my best thanks i beg only to state that any opinion of me in regard to the crime imputed to me that does not fully acquit me of all knowledge thereof whatever does not do me justice the crime was contrived and completed so entirely without my knowledge that i had not the most distant idea of its having been meditated until i read of its commission in the public prints letter ends in a brief reply to that letter earl grey stated that the petition having been presented to the king and being now under consideration no more formal address need to be sent in lieu of it thus lord cochrane had only to await the result of his application and he waited for sixteen months during that interval many friends interceded on his behalf especially lord durham and lord auckland and from time to time his hopes were quickened by information that the subject was still being considered by his majesty's ministers who were anxious that right should be done but he was often disappointed the king he said in a letter written on the first of april has invited all the knights of the bath to dine with him on the twelfth which is the anniversary of the affair of basque roads as well as that of gambia's installation if nothing is done on that day i shall not obtain justice during the life of william the fourth indeed i understand that every effort has been made to influence the king to my prejudice it is no letter ends i was at an evening party at the marquess of lansdowne's on friday wrote lord cochrane on the twenty fifth of april and there i met with the lord chancellor brahm who was very civil indeed and told me they had a battle to fight for me and hoped they would succeed since then the electors of the borough of southwark have sent a deputation to beg me to stand but hearing that brahm's brother was also to be a candidate i have declined opposing him i had a double motive for this line of conduct for had i been returned to parliament i could not have consciously accepted a favour 
at the hands of the ministers of the crown. End quote. Service in the House of Commons was soon after that made impossible to Lord Cochrane. His father, Archibald, ninth Earl of Dundonald, died on the 1st of July, 1831. Lord Cochrane then ceased to be a commoner and became, in succession, when he was nearly 56 years old, Earl of Dundonald. As Earl of Dundonald, however, he found it no easier to obtain an answer to his demand for justice than as Lord Cochrane. In September, he heard that his opponents were making use of some admiralty correspondence respecting his conduct in Chile nearly ten years before, to throw fresh difficulties in his way. He at once applied to Sir James Graham, the First Lord of the Admiralty, for extracts from his correspondence of any parts requiring explanation, in order that he might furnish the same. I beg leave to state, wrote Sir James in reply, that it is not usual for His Majesty's Government to produce from the records of the public officers documents which do not appear to be required for any public purpose. I am therefore under the necessity of declining to comply with your Lordship's request." Is it not astonishing, said Lord Dundonald, in a letter to the Duke of Hamilton, that Sir James Graham does not consider justice to an individual to be a public object? Tired out at length by the delays in the settlement of his case, Lord Dundonald wisely resolved to seek a personal interview with the King. With that object he went down to Brighton, and the interview was readily granted to him on Sunday the 27th of November. He was graciously received, and the King listened attentively to his respectful claim for fair investigation of the matter, and for permission to rebut any charges that might have been brought against him respecting his conduct in connection with the stock exchange fraud, his Chilean service, or any other portion of his life that had been or could be complained of. His Majesty promised to see that the case was fairly looked into, and Lord Dundonald was not long in observing the good effects of his bold step. Lady Dundonald has seen Lord Grey, and he has expressed his readiness to do all he can. He wrote from London on the 17th of December, but I understand there is something in the way. Burdett assures me he will bring the whole affair before Parliament if they do not do me justice. It is no literance. Sir Francis Burdett, who, never flagging in his friendship, had rendered valuable assistance during these weary months, continued in the same course to the end, but it was not necessary for him to speak to Parliament in this case, yet its settlement was further delayed. I am unwilling to trespass on your lordship's most valuable time, wrote Lord Dundonald to Earl Grey on the 28th of January, 1832. But as it is now two months since I had the honour of an audience with the King, and of presenting to His Majesty my humble memorial, setting forth my claims to be heard in my defence, in refutation of the accusations existing against me in the Admiralty, and praying that I might be furnished with copies of the accusatory documents, I can no longer refrain from entreating your lordship to relieve my mind from its present state of most painful suspense by making me acquainted with the decision of the government. From my knowledge of your lordship's considerate feelings towards me and your desire, should it be found practicable and just, to restore me to my place in His Majesty's service, and from that consciousness of my own integrity which has maintained me during so many years of adversity, I cannot but be sanguine, notwithstanding the delay, of an ultimately favourable result, but the period of suspense is not only one of great mental anxiety, but in other respects most injurious. It places me in a position worse than that which I was in under the former administration, which at once decided to dismiss my complaint without consideration, and spared me the uncertainty that makes the heart sick. While those ministers were in power, my character sustained no injury from their refusal to do me justice, but under the administration of your lordship, the public opinion must be that my case has received every consideration, and that the ascertained justice of the verdict against me is the bar to my restoration. 
this opinion already operates so much to my disadvantage and annoyance as to paralyse all my pursuits and will shortly compel me unless your lordship spares me that sacrifice to quit a country of which i have never by any act of my life rendered myself unworthy and in the bosom of which unless called out again in her service i would fain spend the remainder of my life in tranquillity the letter was delivered by the countess of dundonald who at this time as at all others laboured with rare energy and tact to lighten her husband's heavy load of suffering and to augment his scanty store of joy lady dundonald he wrote on the sixth of february has had a long talk with lord grey on the subject of my affair and it clearly appears that there are two individuals in the cabinet who will not give in it is now however determined that lady dundonald i being out of town shall go to the king with a very proper memorial on her part praying that the stain on the family may be wiped away by a free pardon it is supposed this will succeed because in that case the king can exercise his prerogative without other counsel than that of his prime minister who is favourable readers note letter ends that term free pardon was galling to lord dundonald he knew that he had done nothing which needed forgiveness it was justice not pardon he sought he had suffered so much however from official formalities and his honest resentment of them that he now reluctantly consented to accept the virtual acquittal which was the great object of his hopes and toils though it might be couched in a phrase none the less distasteful to him because it was a phrase that from time immemorial had been used as a cloak for the withdrawal of official wrong his concession was successful the king he was able to write on the fourth of march has at last promised to do that which the late administration refused and the present ministry had not the power or courage to accomplish for this i am indebted to the zealous exertions of lady dundonald who has been at brighton and has left lord grey and others no rest until her object was accomplished thus you see perseverance has done more than reason right and justice the fact is that great folks neither read nor trouble themselves with judging from facts on subjects which do not immediately concern themselves i have no doubt that the review has never been looked into by one of the ministers Reader's note letter ends the free pardon was promised on the twenty eighth of february but was not formally granted until five weeks afterwards lord dundonald ascertained that one cause of the long delay in considering his case was the heat of party fight occasioned by the reform bill the government feared to show any kindness to a man whom the tories had so long and so persistently reviled lest thereby they should lose in the house of commons a few wavering votes that were important the reform bill passed the lower house for the second time at the end of march its final adoption being expected with less difficulty than arose it was now easier to do justice to lord dundonald i was happy to hear your memorial to the king read in council and referred to the admiralty the earl of durham wrote to him on the sixteenth of april i trust we may eventually have the means of doing an act of private as well as of public justice and that i shall see you restored to that service of which you are the highest ornament but you well know that you have not only my best wishes but my warmest exertions for your attainment of that object it is not letter end the object was at last attained at a privy council held on the second of may a free pardon was granted to the earl of dundonald he was restored to his position in the navy list and on the eighth gazetted as a rear admiral of the fleet in that capacity he was presented to king william the fourth at a levy held on the ninth of may and congratulations poured in from all quarters as soon as the good news was published but he could not even at the first moments of rejoicing forget that the cause of congratulation was only a pardon for an offence which he had never committed and for which he had been enduring heavy punishment during sixteen years of his life 
End of chapter 23. Recording by Timothy Ferguson, Gold Coast, Australia.